Rector's Cupboard presents Not Ashamed Towards a Healthy View of Self and Sexuality with keynote speaker Hilary McBride, May 29th and 30th in North Vancouver. For more information or to register, go to universe.com slash not ashamed. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. Order. Well, welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. It's a beautiful sunny day in March, early March 2020, and we are at North Point Brewery in North Vancouver. At the mic, we have Ken Bell. Hello, it's Hello, good Ken. to be here. Allison Williams. Hello. And our guest who will introduce formally a little later, Lynn DeMerton. Hi. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Um, so it is, as I say, early March 2020, and often we record these episodes and then they're not uh, put up online until f- at least a few weeks later. Sometimes it might be more because we might record two or three in succession or something. So what is it, March 4th today? Something like that. So March yeah. 4th today, and the only story in the world other than yesterday was Super Tuesday and whatever else in the United States, is the coronavirus. Yes, it is. And it's every, you know, every story turned on. I was watching a story about politics in Israel a couple of days ago, and, and they had a, an election there. And they had a place where you could go and vote if you were quarantined. Like, it's just, it's everywhere all around the world. The coronavirus mm-hmm. is. So I thought we'd start off by talking about um, uh, our own experience here in Canada and some of the fear, um, rational or irrational behavior. We have a National Post article that we have read, uh, the four of us, recently. Um, we have Costco experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought just maybe start off with a question. We, we know that people are afraid to some degree. Yes. This might sound like a dumb question, but go with me on it and try to answer it. Um, what are they afraid of? Apparently running out of toilet paper. It Which does seem to be a I, big concern. And, and I get to a certain degree, it is I'm, I'm afraid of being, you know, I, I'm going to be quarantined. I'm going to be locked into my house. And the thing that people seem to be really zeroed in on is, dear God, give me enough toilet paper. And I just think there's a few other things that would be higher on my list. Hand sanitizer. <laughs> Hand sanitizer. <laughs> I, wouldn't know, I, would, I think food would be higher on my list of things I'd want to stockpile. Well, Maybe some broth. Well, the thing is, uh, if you alcohol. don't have a lot of food, you don't need a lot of toilet paper. Well, I would um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Did you say, it, there is uh, also Rick. a lot of... Um, like Rick has hand sanitizer. He'll sell yes. you. Rick? I can see it right here. No, I totally interrupted, but I was just going to oh. ask, because you guys were at Costco recently. I was, People yesterday. People were freaking out and doom blah, 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 blah. Were they still taking the samples? Yes. We saw that. People with masks oh, yeah, you and had a gloves great story. on. Yeah. Like, full glove. I'm like, okay. And then they pull their <laughs> mask down, take the sample that everybody else has access to, and eat it. And I'm like, there's some inconsistencies here. Can we just address that or acknowledge that? So I went to Costco. Was it yesterday? Yes, yesterday. it was yesterday. And I partially in research for this, and I also I have you this... You find joy in those sorts I of things. I have this sense of me that, like, the, in that... Like, this could get bad, and people could be listening to this. Not that they're going to. Like, if, if the apocalypse, the coronavirus apocalypse comes, they're probably not like, I need to listen to Rector's Cupboard. But 
um, it, if it gets worse, and you know, we don't know what's happening with this, and by the time this is released, this might not be funny A bunch anymore. of things will have happened. Maybe it's not a thing anymore. Maybe it's way worse, and you know, the, there's no NHL playoffs or something like that. We just don't know what's going to happen. But part of what is interesting to me is, and I don't mean to be kind of macabre about it. Like I, I also go. I haven't, I haven't been alive for anything like this before. So I know that like there's like this weird thing happening at Costco's for some reason. So I want to go there, and so I went yesterday. This is. Did you hear me echo? That was cool. The end of the line for the toilet paper and paper towels. This was at this was at Costco. Yeah, not the one I was at. But so I sat in the parking lot for like half an hour before it opened because I thought. I just want to go in and out quick. And I did have some a few groceries to pick up, and I did buy some toilet paper. But then the line got longer and longer and longer. It was the whole length of the store before we... And then there's this just this mad rush. And then I literally did this. I thought, because I hadn't really prepared that much, I hadn't thought, what are all these people here for? I mean, I knew the toilet paper thing, but I thought, I guess I'll just follow the, the running people because people were running. Yeah. Well... Uh, SNL this this past weekend had a uh, on their what's the news segment called on SNL mm, weekend the update weekend update and not Colin Yost the other guy the co-host Michael, Michael Che was saying uh, yeah I'm not making any of these jokes because <laughs> yeah. what if what if in a little while I'm like dying of this and people are making fun yeah. of me for dying of, so it's, uh, yeah, it's but a, there's a weird <laughs> communal aspect at the same time that I want to refer to this there was a great article in the our column in the New York Times yesterday yeah. Uh, called Coronavirus is Us, which the gist of this column is basically saying we can tend to think that we'll solve our problems by being independent right. and apart from one another. And, and of course, with something like this, there's quarantine, borders and walls and kind of like all these things that... But the gist of the article is saying these things are actually solved or any human kind of problem is solved by interconnectedness. And and so the, the quote that stood out for me was this one. It says, survivalism has always followed a trajectory parallel to that of virulent nationalism. At its core, at survivalism's core, is the fiction of a self-reliant, totally independent and autonomous, Crusoe-esque, Robinson Crusoe, individual, the one who is smart and strong enough to be able to save himself. They say in brackets, the gendered pronoun is not accidental save himself and perhaps his family. And then for us, coming from kind of Christian tradition, this was an interesting observation, I thought. This follows the trail of the theological doctrine of salvation reserved for the select few. This attitude abstracts human beings from, their envirom from the environmental, communal, economic, and other contexts of their lives. So back to toilet paper at Costco. I, what I felt was, it's weird because everybody's trying to do that individual self-reliance thing, but we're all here together in this mad crowd. And, you know, a number of us started chatting and stuff. Like, like you know, going, <laughs> can you believe what's going on here? And there's like this weird kind of communal feel to it. Back to what are people afraid of? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, the, the thing is that if, if this does become a global pandemic, uh, if the fatality rate stays at about 2%, if 2% of the world's population is gone, it's not a small thing. No. Like, and, and I think that as, as people who have either maybe are themselves immunocompromised or have family members that are susceptible, they could be going, oh my goodness, how am I going to make sure that my mom or my, my friend or myself, like how, how could I ever keep myself safe from this? I, I think that there's definitely some validity to that. You think of that nursing home in... Um, oh, in Kirkland. Or care center, I guess they call yeah. it now, right? That 
and they're realizing now that it was there long before they knew that yeah. they're actually tracking back some some deaths yeah to say okay these other three or four people died from it before we knew it was around and that it's spread from there and stuff right that and you think what would it be like to have a loved one there or something or two and of course now it's quarantined off and mm -hmm. so then masks like why are people wearing masks because they think that those they're going to magically protect them from the disease Do, I mean, like is that it i mean some why? people must be wearing masks because if they're sick they don't want to you know if they're i coughing. think that's definitely part of it i think more people are worried about protecting themselves yeah, than protecting the general so. population i heard this morning listening to a guy on cbc radio a doctor talking about this that and he he was kind of trying to he was giving a positive reason for masks because most of the science scientific views that i've read have said there's no real use to the masks um, and he was saying there is one use to them, and that's that they'll stop you from touching your face. face. So it's which actually I'm currently doing unless you're at Costco <laughs> and you want to get the sample, <laughs> in which case you yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know, speaking of nationalism and back to that New York Times article, I used to be scared when I would hear um, <clears throat> Trump supporters chanting "Build the Wall" at his rallies, you know, to keep the migrants out. Yeah. And now they're chanting "Build the Wall." in response to trying to stop the social contagion of the coronavirus. Which is insane. It, yeah. Yeah. You can't stop it with a wall. No. Like how do you, you know, because you need three people who fly and land here or... Who may be it, asymptomatic. Totally. Or like, but this is the yeah. fiction that, that what we're safe from one another. And, and when that message comes from the top of the uh, country, yeah, it's yeah. kind of scary that a third of Americans think like that. Well, we're we're going to be okay because there's a wall, which actually there isn't. But well, and it, it's concerning to me looking at particularly a system like the United States, where you have you have a lot of people that don't have great access to healthcare. Who, if they have mild symptoms of a cold, like a sore throat or a slight cough, first of all, they may not be able to afford to take time off, or they may That's not a have big, sick days. Big deal right now. Or yeah. they may be afraid that they'll lose their job if yeah. they don't go in. And yeah. so there, there are people who, who they, they don't have a system in which they can actually be well set up to contain this in any way. It's, I look at it and it makes me terrified. And like how close we are to the border, I'm like, this is a pretty porous border. People go back and forth and back and forth. And if you're going to, to anywhere that has other people, there's a huge risk that those people, they, they may have something and it's, and they don't have the means and the abilities and the systems in which to properly take care of themselves. I, I think there's also a fear of the effect it's going to have um, on the on the economy and stuff, and just on. Uh, so I have friends who live in northern Italy. They live just outside of Torino. Oh my goodness! Yeah. They've closed the schools. Like there's, there, it's not spring break or anything, but the schools are closed to at least middle of March, uh, maybe longer. You are basically in your house. Uh, they have medical people going around and taking swabs of everyone in the community, everyone in the village, to make sure you're not sick. If you are, you're going to be quarantined. Um, See, I think so that's the first thing people are afraid of is quarantine. Is, is, is like that's why they're buying the and, toilet paper. And a bit of, I mean, quarantine will keep us safe, but at the same time, we have that, you can't tell me where to live. You can't tell me where to, so there's going to be a, push back against quarantine. I mean, we've all seen those movies where, you know, people are, I think there was a movie called Quarantine. Anyways, uh, where people are quarantined and the thing they want to do is get out, right? So I, I think there's a fear that, oh no, I might be quarantined and, yeah. and the yeah. reaction to get out, um, it's going to limit my freedom, but it's going to have, a, it could have a huge, like what happens in, in 
uh, hospitals when doctors and nurses and technicians start coming down with this. What's well, one of the problems they no have is that doctors and nurses everyone and from firefighters, medical professionals, they're quarantined at a higher rate because yeah. they've come into contact more with it. The, the thing, and you know, while I'm, I don't mean to like belittle it, but there's something when I'm at Costco and the toilet paper thing's happening and there's something kind of weirdly communal and playful about it that like you get talking to people in the line and every you know was like well, what is happening here this is did you know mm -hmm. it'd be like this and then so there's kind of something um interpersonal that that can happen um so it, it's not to dim to diminish it but as someone you know speaking from a position of faith then you i'm asking the question of what is our response when a lot of the world is afraid <laughs> you know and when we might be afraid too to some degree but what how do we react to people who are in fear? How do we see it operating, whether mm -hmm. it's in Costco and what do you do, or whether it's in some of the things we'll talk about later where there's fear and marginalization that has done such tremendous damage. And what I suppose what we're asking is what is, what is a better way? And not judging people for that, for that fear. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, it's, I think it's very rational in some senses. I mean, you've seen huge countries like shut down with this. It's not out of yeah. the realm of possibility that there will be more. Um, and I think that probably one of the better responses I is compassion mm -hmm. and, and not trying to, to belittle or um, chastise people who are afraid. To go, clearly you're afraid for a reason. And well, yeah, and the death, you know, like... People are dying. And they are. The, one of the articles I read, I think it was the best one I'd read on it, was saying there's two things that uh, scientists or, you know, the leading epidemi epidemiologists, is epidemiologists, that what you say? Epidemiologists, yeah. Um, are really concerned about with this. And so they, they kind of remove themselves and they're more clinical. And they say the real concern with, with this virus at this point is that um, people who are asymptomatic are passing it. So that brings up a whole host of problems. And that while most of the people who are dying from it are older people with compromised immune systems, for some reason, some young people are dying from it. And even though it's a small percentage, that's deeply, deeply troubling to the scientific community because they're saying until we get that vaccine or whatever, this is an issue. Ken, uh, when then I, we'll I would say the other thing that we can do is if we do find out that someone in our community, in our neighborhood, uh, our neighbor, whatever, is, is sick and is choosing to stay at home, figure out ways of reaching out to them, like help them out. Yeah, like deliver stuff to deliver the door. Deliver stuff like toilet paper or beans yeah. or, 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 rice. or rice or whatever. <laughs> Hand sanitizer. Like, like, like sanitizer. We, we're not going to be able to do survive this by isolating exactly ourselves. Exactly, yeah. We're yeah. only going to be able to survive this and get through it and, and get to the other side of it by doing things in community, which is true for any of us who have any sort of, whether it's physical problems, mental health problems, aging problems, uh, isolation, uh, being dehumanized, it's only through connection with others that we're actually going to be able to get to the other here, side. Here, here. Mm -hmm. It is, so when I was checking out at Costco, like leaving, and it's just, it's such an automatic conversation with everybody. So, you know, I say to the, the gentleman who was, you know, putting the groceries through, I'm like, has it been like crazy for a while? He's like, oh my goodness, it's so crazy. You can't even, and then he said, I heard that in another Costco um, on Saturday, people were climbing the big rafter shelves. Like, you know how high the shelves go there? Mm -hmm. And people were climbing them to the top to get the rice that was up there. And like, and wow. what that did for me is give me the image, like zombie apocalypse type stuff, right? How quickly everything that we just take for granted as the way the world works can dismantle, mostly not by circumstance, 
but mostly by fear. By fear, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's in it. So, here, here. excellent. Thank you. We're going to head to the cupboard now and, and uh, welcome, who's already on the mic, our cupboard master, Ken Bell, and you'll tell us where we are and yeah. what we're tasting. Off yeah, well, it's great to be here on the mic, and uh, we are, as Todd said at the beginning, at North Point Brewery. Uh, they only opened uh, less than a year ago. Uh, it's in a beautiful sort of uh, warehouse space, but they've, it's nice and bright. They've got nice wood on the wall. They've got a little campfire uh, uh, space or, or a fireplace space, bright big windows, uh, and they have a variety of beer. And one of the things they want to do is they said, uh, I was talking to the brewmaster, Paul, and he says, we're not trying to specialize in a type of beer. Like we don't want to do just IPAs or just sours. We want to have something for everyone so that when people come in here, no matter what kind of beer you like, we're going to have something uh, to offer. It uh, started by a couple of uh, few North Vancouver guys who've known each other for a long time. And then they found, uh, found Paul on LinkedIn and said, oh, really? do you want to come and do this? And Paul Looking said, for first, a brewmaster? Well, at first he said, I was a little suspicious that this was a bit of a con. <laughs> and then found out that these guys were for real. And so he's, he's here brewing. So uh, what we have on, on offer is one, actually two, three, we have four. three beer and a cider. It was required, requested by one of our, uh, one of our main hosts uh, to try something other than beer. So the first one mm-hmm. is uh, a strawberry blonde, which is their number one seller. It's, it's kind their of favorite. Tasiest. Yeah. One? Uh, the second one uh, you'll try is Tropic Like It's Hot and Sour. So it's, I think it's mango and uh, might be pineapple or something. Yeah, that's the name, the that fruit. long name you said? Yeah, Tropic Like It's Hot and Sour. Oh, okay. So like um, Tropic Like It's Hot. Like that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, the third one it's is a, a House Saison. So a Saison is a, is a French uh, sort of style beer. And then the final one is the dry Sorry, apple cider. Like a, yeah. yeah. So go ahead, give it a Strawberry try. Uh, Lynn has said she's, she, she, she's okay with beer, not, not the world's biggest fan of beer, prefers wine. I we prefer got wine, cider. but this is such a pretty presentation. I'm very excited. It is nice, isn't it's it? It's beautiful. Yeah. It's the, very that's nice. That's nice. So the strawberry blonde is good. I would... It's not too fruity, you know? No, it's nice and light. The sour is quite sour, but got a great is that too flavor said, to oh, it. Drop yeah. it like it's hot or whatever. Saison is nice and clean. It's got a bit of fruitiness to it, like a Saison uh, usually Ooh, does. That is a very sour, sour. It's a, yeah, it's not Ooh. pretending. You're not sipping that going, hmm, is this the sour or no, is this the lager? Not. Have you guys like listen to the podcast and listen and to these tasting sections? Uh, They're yeah. super interesting. They're, I go, if only it, they would talk know. more about the things <laughs> I think that it I'm works. not drinking. <laughs> so I think maybe I think it Somehow works us describing beer. drinking alcohol to you uh, works. So anyway, so that's There's it. There's dumber things uh, happening there, there people are. listen to. Uh, continue to enjoy it. We're going to move on oh. to uh, introducing uh, Lynn and talking about uh, our next uh, segment. So Thank you, Ken. Thanks. Fantastic. Did you try the cider? I did. So the cider's not made here. Look, somebody went to the grocery store. And yeah, well, it's the Soma, Soma Dry Cider. And yeah, it's cider. I mean, I'm okay with cider. That's all right, yeah. But it's nice, yeah. I do enjoy a slight deviance from just Just the, beer. We've had beer. a lot of beer. Um, Thank you for indulging right, well, me. I will admit to that. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest for uh, this episode of the podcast, Dr. Lynn DeMerton. Recently graduated from UBC with a PhD in counseling psychology. I imagine that was... How many years of working on PhD? It took me five. Oh, so five, like, and that's kind of full time? Yep. Okay. Are you, and you're glad to be done, or did you enjoy the work, both? I love learning. Yeah. Uh, but I found it, like, really challenging, and I didn't actually work while I was studying. That right. was a full-time job. So I'm sort of recovering. So there's kind of a <laughs> sense of, like, how do people do this? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so recently, uh, UBC with a PhD in counseling psychology, also a businesswoman, a philanthropist, uh, and jobs have included counseling at the Ministry of Child and Family Development and teaching psychology at Trinity Western University. Um, I should tell you, uh, Dr. Chuck McNee yeah. is had just yesterday has signed up to be a guest on a very an episode coming up soon so thanks for that awesome he's great yeah we're going out to langley and he's gonna so currently lynn is in the role of a consultant with the sanctuary program which is part of uh, uh, the many good programs that union gospel mission does so this is a newer program i think correct and uh is part of the women and family center that is being built am i getting that right yeah new <coughs> facility and th- and this sanctuary program will basically be a floor the sanctuary program uh, is a transitional housing program. Uh, they did a pilot, and now it's been in operation for five years. Oh, I didn't know it was that long. Wow. Okay. So they take women from places like Fur Square, families in recovery, where they give birth to their babies, and they're stabilized. The mums are stabilized on methadone because they've been struggling with opioid challenges. And then the sanctuary program will take them right from the hospital so that they don't fall through the cracks when... Um, they are considering whether or not to go to recovery mm-hmm. and they're wow. complying with child protection orders and so on. So the sanctuary program will continue to exist within a much larger uh, center now right. that's going to be like a full seven-story so building. there's residents wow. in this program now living in one of the UGM... They're living in multiple? temporary housing okay. now and oh, the okay. new building is set to open in the fall of 2021. And we'll have like apartments or something or suites? It's going to have three floors of social housing, uh, wow. uh, gender specific for yeah. mother-led families. It's going to have uh, two daycares on the top floor and two floors for recovery beds for women that are independent of their families and nine beds for mothers with their infants. I don't think there's going to be anything like it wow. in Canada. Wow. Is it modeled on other programs or do you like... No, from they're, other stu- they're, so this they're is figuring kind of, it out. So you're going to have people from other cities coming to you and wanting to observe this and see how you do it. And Maybe. Yeah. I'm helping them develop their program design. Good. That's fantastic. Um, so we'll hear more about this in a few minutes um, to, con- to conclude the intro. Um, also married to Mark, who also is involved in a lot of uh, the work and has been uh, c- connected largely with UGM as well, right? Um, and mom to how many kids? Three. Three kids. Uh, how old? You can ask that. Not you, but the kids. Uh, oh, my kids? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're like 35, 32, and 29. And they're all married. They're all married. And, and I have six grandchildren. Oh, do you? Okay, that's yeah. fantastic. Uh, oh, there it says, grandmother of six. And the last note is that you love the Vancouver Canucks. So we can talk about that for a minute. Well, I do. Uh, you scared me when you said, what if the NHL playoffs I know, I would see be canceled because <laughs> the Canucks might make it for the first time in about five years. They're not going to. But Don't anyways. say that. Wow. Just, wow. I speak truth. No, it's, well, they have these injuries now. Quinn Hughes is injured. Uh, our goalie. Yeah, he's the MVP. Is that why you say Jacob that? Tyler Myers is gone. Tyler Myers not the... No, sorry. Well, I have nothing um, to add to this conversation. Brock Besser is out. <laughs> I mean, it's this is... But, as you know, and we're going to talk... The great segue to... This is the adversity they're going to face to see if they get in or... Yeah. Uh, oh, and, uh, I see where you're going. You have to face the adversity. Be, they can be tragically right. optimistic. There you go. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, what tragic optimism is. And so, yes, I'm a Canuck fan as well. And I am hopeful, a little more hopeful than Ken. I think they will likely make it. 
uh, barring a swoon. You free, feel feel free to be wrong. That's fine. So I'm going to my. So uh, so welcome, Lynn. Really really glad to have you here, and we look forward to hearing more about your work and and uh, your education and teaching and programs. So we'll start off by asking that. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to take up the work that you have. And, um, oh, you want to do that first? I forgot about that. Well, you listed it first. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you visually, <laughs> I totally forgot that. So you can think about telling us about yourself. <laughs> but but first, we have a super minutes. cool thing, and that is this, um, thank you, Ken. You're welcome. This hometown hockey segment from, from uh, speaking of hockey, um, on this uh, f- uh, First Nations community in Manitoba, kind of central northern Manitoba, Peguis, Manitoba, and they're, they built a hockey rink there a number of years ago. I guess it's been decades, effectively. Yeah. And this little six-minute segment was on how that has become such a staple in terms of helping particularly young people. And then there's this junior team that you know people endeavor to be on and the community rallies around. And in this, in this um, segment, they basically, so it's a, you can look it up on Sportsnet, I guess. If you just Googled hometown hockey Peguis, P-E-G-U-I-S, P-E-G-U-I-S, you'd get this segment, and it's worth watching. So the way that it's, it's told narratively is that this town has faced some adversity, or this, this First Nations community, in and around hockey. So the current adversity is that they're in a 10-team league, and uh, so they travel to play games and... and you know, you get the assistant coach who says things like, um, or one of the coaches says, obviously it's about more than hockey. It's about helping these young people, right? But in 2018, so two years ago, um, or just under two years ago, five of the teams split off from the league. And so now Peguis is in a situation where they're part of a five-team league only, and all five of those teams are First Nations. So the other five teams, I guess most or all of them were not First Nations That's teams. right, yeah. And, and so the way that they played this, if you watch it, if anybody listening goes and watches it, is they basically say, this is the current adversity, in a sense. And will they make it? Like, will they be able to? Because now kids are quitting. Well, because it, it's gone from, from like 45-minute bus rides for games to six hours. And th- with only five teams in the league now, there's not the competition that there used to be. And, and the program is really, is really struggling. And we didn't give the reason why those five teams split. Well, they said it, they split because uh, it was shortly after the Humboldt uh, accident, which we referred to in a previous yeah, so podcast. Yeah, that was 2017, right? Uh, where uh, a busload of, of kids, where a hockey team was hit and a number of the kids died. And so the, the, these other five teams said, well, we don't want to tr- travel as far for our games. And so we're just going to huddle up. We're just going to kind of like the, the, what we talked about earlier, this idea of we can survive if we just sort of close, mm-hmm. close ranks, be closer. And well, you basically what this have is. parents who would say, we don't want our kids on, on buses for long rides. Right. But apparently it's okay for parents and kids of other teams to be on long rides well, as well. Well, this is that thing you're talking right? about. Like, who are you responsible for? And it really... Yeah, this is a great clip. Well, the caliber of uh, hockey had dropped off, obviously. I know for players, uh, they had to make some decisions on which league to play in. I guess after those teams left, um, it just, I don't know, we felt upset because we, we don't know what we did wrong. Before the split, the closest team was 45 minutes away by bus. Now, 
It's more than six hours. How are we going to keep our youths, our youths, keep their drive up, you know? And, and we said we can't let the juniors die. Well, it affected us lots because guys don't really come and play it now. Yeah, we only had like, about like uh, 12 uh, guys to come to home games, away games. Yeah, fans aren't coming to watch. One of the, one of the th lines that caught my attention in that was, uh, I think it was one of the coaches saying, it's, it's hard to be excluded. Yeah, well, and, and when that, that guy says, that we feeling, don't know what we did wrong. We don't know what we did wrong. It's hard to be excluded in that sense of, and, yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, they did say it's hard, but we will endure. Well, so that's, how, that they set up the, that's how they set up the right? narrative. So they, they say, you know, here's the current challenge. And then all of a sudden, and it's quite abrupt, they say, in 2007, the rink burned down. So now you're going back years and years. And the rink burned down, and they rebuilt it. Um, Siri's talking to me. The rink been built burnt down and they rebuilt it so they're saying we overcame this adversity back then and we will in, like it'll be but i not to be hopeless but i don't know if they will survive this one it, this seems like discrimination to me yeah. what <laughs> right yeah discrimination well, in canada against aboriginals and against first nations people except you don't you're not forced to like you know there's no human right that says you have to well, well do their then. teams just happen to be the farther north? Yeah. And yes. The five I mean, teams that, that... They do have the geographical excuse. Were, ...were the five teams, from what I understand, in, in southern Manitoba. But clearly one of them was only 45 uh, minutes away. Yeah. That they also said, you're not part of us. It does seem that way. Right? You're not part of us. You're not... So it could be geography, maybe. Well, and even if it's not, there, when, you, when you're dealing with, with a community that has faced a lot of discrimination. Yeah. How do you not, in one sense, seek to handle that at least in a better way so that you can kind of at least triage some of that anticipated pain? You go, even if that's not the intention, which I don't want to necessarily speak to too much intention there, but I'm like, dude, that's, you had to know that they would have felt like that. The optics aren't great. No, they're not. But if you... If you uh how would they not feel the, like the it was The thing an that stood out thing? most to me in it was that one, and for those who watch it, I think, Ooh, he's, the one I think he's the most compelling character in like it. Like the yeah. assistant coach. Other than at the end of the shot, like I almost had tears in my eyes, they did a nice job of filming it. There's two beautiful shots at the end, the one drone shot of the rink. And then, and then of course, the most interesting thing in any feature like this is always people. So then they've got that, the group of kids standing there with hockey sticks. I almost tear up now because you just see, and they do a nice job narratively of showing like, this matters to this community. Yeah. Like, this makes a oh, difference yeah. to people who... But the one yeah. assistant coach or coach or something, he's in the dressing room when he's... And he's talking about this. He obviously feels it's kind of discriminatory or it's flat-out discriminatory. And then he, he's basically just saying, like, what, what are we going to do for these kids? That, and you realize, and I know we'll talk about it maybe in a few minutes, but it, one of the concepts in your work that you were looking at, that to me was a picture of this self-transcendence. This man's coaching... But it's not like for his own personal gain. He's he's helping somebody else, and yeah. now he's going. My opportunity to help those these kids is being kind of shut down, and so it, it's a really really interesting piece. I I didn't know. I had no idea that these kinds of decisions were like the echo from the Humboldt thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Like, I didn't know about this. Has this ripple effect. Can we call on Ron McLean and, and hometown hockey? Like, this is wrong. Yeah, well, that's what, I mean, at least they put the feature out there. Yeah. It's like, people like us are talking about this now to say, we didn't know. Um, I mean, I think, again, how do, you, how do you work with and care for people who are making decisions based on fear? Well, this community clearly needs help. They need a miracle. Yeah, they need somebody to come in and, 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 but how do you, and it's such a big problem because, I mean, just the scope of it, you can't all of a sudden make another good quality team. Like when they said kids are quitting that northern league, yeah, to the, play the for indigenous the one, because mm-hmm. the hockey quality is better than the other one, and if they have any interest in carrying on in hockey, so the whole thing is splintering apart, right? At least that's how they put it. Yeah. And well, I'm left at going. At least that's how it feels to them. Well, I think, yeah, how it feels to them and clearly is. Clearly, yeah. And I, I'm left going, I think you can rebuild a rink. And sports are, a way, sports are a way they help the kids find oh. meaning. Like find a sense of self, a sense teams. of confidence. Pride, pride within the community as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, just pride of, of uh, you know, this is, these, these are our kids. This is our team. This mm-hmm. is, um, and, and, but what we see in this, and this will get into some of the stuff we're t- going to talk about later, is this idea of this, this self-protectionism, which, we th- which is very individualistic. It might extend to my family, maybe to a few other people who I identify with because of race, culture, or faith. Are, what that does is it automatically excludes a whole bunch of others. And one of the things that, not to get overly religious or, some, or anything, but... When we read the Gospels, Jesus' whole thing is we're breaking down those things. I'm going to the people who have been marginalized, who have been dehumanized, who have been told they don't count, to the women, to the, the lepers, to who, whoever it is. Well, and in Canada, and like, coming to terms with our history in terms of Indigenous, right? Like, we're so far still. You, Lynn, know much more about this than we do, but that's why, like, the, the pain of seeing these kids' faces... And to me, it's not just the hockey thing and not just Pegasus right now. It's like, it's kind of like, damn it. Even in these little things, mm-hmm. well, we even political- here, like a hockey team, like, does it have to hurt that little kid? You know, and it's just, it's so much part of our culture and history. We have that you- political leaders saying, uh, send in the police. Basically, send, send in the colonial forces to tame these people. Yeah, it's still Is what our so- political leaders are saying. And, and. Like, so how can that also not affect how these people in, in this community of Pegasus are feeling? Well, we'll end with, and, and so I'll go back to <laughs> asking Lynn about, about, you know, history and work. And, but, um, and I, I'll kind of end it with that, that sense of that young guy, that player saying, and it just kind of haunts me, right? We don't know what we did wrong. Yeah. Um, and how I would imagine many people you work with could say similar things and so so lynn tell us about yourself how did you get to take up the work that you did on both your master's degree and your phd uh, any kind of way of walking us through that thanks todd uh you know i went to university as a young mom with three young kids and i i hope my story inspires other young moms out there so i was a bit of a late bloomer on the educational scene um but as a lifelong learner and a mature student, I really was able to use connections to get into my research and the work I did. So way back when, when I did my master's uh, degree and I had to do research, I had gone to a, 
personal growth seminar called Choices. Mm -hmm. I remember it. And it turns out that um, indigenous bands across BC were also sending their band mm. members there because mm. uh, they found out it was a place for healing for them. So at the same time, I was working with a professor who designed this instrument to measure tragic optimism, which I can talk about more. But we wanted to do a cross-cultural study and measure um, whether or not Indigenous people would have higher tragic optimism than non-Indigenous people because of their background of severe adversity and also their return to their own spiritual roots. So just um, d d tell us a little bit, like, what is tragic optimism? and Yeah, and from <clears throat> tragic optimism is, well, let me see. Tragic optimism is, first of all, it's not typical optimism. So it's not the kind of thing that we think of in our Western societies, you know, for the last yeah. 40 years where you just go... Oh, I'm a glass half full person. Yeah, it's more, it's good more meaningful. Yeah. are going to happen than bad. Right. Or, you know, it's not a trait. We know people that we say they just always think that they can do everything and, and or else they don't. So it's, it's not a personality trait. Right. It's not a state of being. It's actually got an existential spiritual basis. And that came from Frankel. So Viktor Frankl, yeah. if I could just tell that yeah, story for, sure. mm -hmm. for a minute of where tragic optimism came from. He was an Austrian psychiatrist who um, was arrested and served time in four different concentration camps. He survived, obviously. He was at Auschwitz. And he noticed when he was in Auschwitz that there was a difference between people. Some of them would, like, turn over and die. Mm -hmm. And others, like him, didn't. Uh, he fiercely protected himself from committing suicide. And th it all boiled down to the ones that thought that there was a meaning to stay mm -hmm. alive in those circumstances. So feeling some kind of a hope or optimism in the midst of tragic circumstances. In spite of your dire circumstances. Yeah. And the existential part is in spite of extreme pain mm -hmm. and the threat of death. Okay. So that's where it what okay. came from. Okay, so back to, you know, you're speaking before about your own work in terms of yeah. who has this and how does, yeah. So um, that was my master's degree. Uh, later on, I studied at UBC, and then I, again, used my connections with the Union Gospel Mission, and it turned out I was going to interview 20 women that were parenting young children between the ages of birth and six, and also self-identified that they were struggling with substance use, okay. impacted by substance use. So the UGM um, helped me recruit participants and introduced me to other organizations. And I asked those 20 women, uh, and I ended up with a thousand pages of data, about what helped them when they were mm -hmm. in this experience mm -hmm. of trying to raise their children while impacted by substance use, what was not helpful or what hindered them and what they wished would be available to them. So yeah, as a mature student, I used my mm -hmm. connections and I didn't plan to work with indigenous participants in both of my research projects. It kind of turned out that way. And 45% uh, mm. of the women I interviewed really? in my PhD dissertation were also indigenous, which quite an overrepresentation for women in that situation. Was this something that many of them had experienced anything like this or were they like you're interviewing these people? I would imagine they're not often getting interviewed by people working on a PhD. 
Well, they sometimes say that people in the downtown east side are researched to yeah, death. Yeah, that's true too, yeah. Mm. Uh, but I also interviewed people that were in other parts of BC. Okay. They were in um, rehab and so on. So I had, it, it strikes me as I've read some of the material that you've given us, both on tragic optimism, master's work, and then your PhD work, this study with these women, and, and then what you're working on now, that one of the common threads, or at least something you'd see through it, w- would be hope. Like how some people remain either, we could say, optimistic or hopeful. Um, and so I just had to ask, what, what does it look like in your experience to encounter someone who is hopeful, and how have you seen that hope in some relatively dark places? Well, the, you know, the word hope, I don't know what you guys think, but hope and optimism can be interchangeable terms. Um, like this definition of hope, hope's an optimistic state of mind, mm-hmm. or from a faith perspective, hope's a confident expectation of mm-hmm. what God has promised. Mm-hmm. But I must say, in my work, um, I see hopeful people that are actually taking action in their lives. Mm. So here's a couple examples. Um, a participant from my most recent research, she was working hard. And I encountered her hope as hard work. Mm. So here she is doing a 75-day mandated recovery, white-knuckling abstinence, complying with protection orders, all in the hope of getting her two children back. Mm. And she was hopeful that, that they would. Or I had a client, a counseling client, who had been historically sexually assaulted and I saw her hopefulness just through the courage that she summoned to report her assault to think about having to testify in court and tell her family and she was doing that all just so that that man might not abuse someone else that was courageous. Yeah. Um, another one of my clients was a gay student, and he came from an oppressive cultural background with regard to homosexuality. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen someone in deeper depression. And when I saw him coming out of his isolation and into a close relationship, like even just with me as yeah. his therapist, I saw that as hopeful and then hopefully that would translate into other relationships that he could have in his life outside of therapy. So as a counselor and a researcher, the hopeful people I encounter seem to be people that are in a state of change of some kind. Mm. Like change, transition, determination. Does it, like, uh, we all kind of feel the struggles we have, our own issues, whatever, and we might be relatively... Comfortable, relatively secure, relatively wealthy, whatever it might be. And so sometimes you're working with people who have like real struggles and issues. And you must have felt at times like if that person who can kind of white knuckle it through this treatment thing and stuff can can feel this, like it must give you hope. It must. Oh, hey, I, I realize uh, I have more in common with those people uh, than we have differences those mothers we all want to parent well we love mm. our kids and we all have problems including addictions yeah a- yeah mm. amen yeah. you mean like yeah these are all things that we share in common yeah and so that's back is one of our major themes as ken was mentioning is this humanization or rehumanization of people who have faced this is the next question i had for you is like people who have been marginalized or faced like judgment and and fear that 
I, I'm wondering in some of the people that you work with um, what that marginalization does and, and, and w how people, what it looks like to get out of that self-judgment that people then can do because other people have judged them. Like you mentioned the, the case of someone who has, uh, who's gay, who has grown up with a certain, uh, you know, people telling them stuff about that. There's a sense of having to emerge from that, I would imagine, self-judgment as well, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the question was, how do you see that correlation between marginalization and judgment and fear um, and so you can answer any of these and how does fear rob us like how is fear paralyzing how have you seen that mm -hmm. that's a good question uh, yes I do I did find a relationship between stigmatized women who live in the margins of our society and fear which I'll also refer to as anxiety mm. um, so I interviewed 20 women um, and while I was doing that, I, I tended towards a social theory of addiction. So I, I'd like to know what you guys think of this. Our society and culture has actually created trauma. And Indigenous mothers have even more trauma to recover from, including the effects of invisible attachment traumas that were inflicted on her own family before she was even born. Right. So... From so a social fallout perspective, trauma and its accompanying anxiety leads to people with addictions and other behaviors, right. and that creates very needy parents that are going to need a lifetime of support. Mm -hmm. That's really well put. You, you said um, invisible attachment? Yeah. You don't think of intergenerational trauma that has created a parenting style uh, in, in generations right. of indigenous people mm -hmm. that needs improvement. P we don't think of trauma that way. And it's uh, invisible because uh, no one I would see. recognize it. So this young mother wasn't parented well herself and neither was her mother. Right. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you, you see the effects particularly in uh, the indigenous community of, of things like residential schools and things like discrimination against the indigenous culture, even still today. Um, and you see the generational effects of that, of people who were taken from their families, told that their culture was wrong, told that their culture was evil. And, and then they don't know how to parent themselves because they were never parented. And then they have children and they have trauma that they've endured in the residential schools. And... And you and go, then of course. And then they're blamed. Of course <laughs> they are going to struggle. Like and there, there's part where, as somebody of of relatively high amount of support and financial means, um, parenting is hard enough on your own. I cannot imagine how much more that would be difficult not having some of those social systems and support, not having things that I can look to, like, my mother and try to emulate. And... And so I go, of course, of course, of course. Mm -hmm. What do you, what no do, you do with the, with the failures? I don't mean like long term, but in any of this work, given, given the intensity of it and stuff, there are like day to day um, misses, failures, sorrows. Like this is something that I would think you have to kind of work through and deal with and think of like the long game with someone, right? Mm -hmm. um, how do you deal with that, like the ongoing sense of like 
okay, this is like a couple steps back or something. Relapses like that? Yeah. And apprehensions of children is terrible Mm. setbacks. So what you were saying, um, yeah, the, the trauma of, well, the trauma of having your child taken away and indigenous children are removed still at much greater proportions than children that are not Aboriginal. So one of my professors at UBC said, like, how about if we stop stealing Aboriginal children from their families? Um, yeah. How do you deal with it? I mean, you have to find hope right. in there and, and you have to persevere. Right. And you have to take things a little bit at a time and hope that every young woman and mother that you can help over a long trajectory mm-hmm. um, is a fantastic result. It's, um, uh, we, we talked about the Peguis hockey thing. Um, and I mentioned briefly when we were talking about it that, and it's because I'd read some of the material you gave us, that this concept of self-transcendence is being something that now this it relates to tragic optimism, but also relates to some of the work you're doing now, that as a category, this concept of self-transcendence, that you wind up, even if you're in tremendous suffering or difficult circumstances, you wind up helping someone else, and that can really help the person. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had another guest, uh, Hillary McBride, who talks about that on some of her podcasts, like her CBC mm-hmm. podcast and stuff, that like helping people out of, of uh, uh, situations of great pain or difficulty, one of the steps can be allowing or helping them to see that they can make a difference in the world. And once they see they're making a difference in the world. So I'm interested in this concept of, of self-transcendence. If you could explain to us what it is and how you've seen it in your work. So you did, you did talk about like somebody like kind of white-knuckling it through this treatment. But self-transcendence is something a mm-hmm. little bit different. Go ahead. And, and you can talk about self-transcendence in, a, in more ordinary terms, too. It might help to start by saying how Frankel saw it in the extermination camps. He said it was kind of a rare occurrence. Um, most of us would have probably defaulted to being typical prisoners, right? Probably right. would have stole stuff and lied and complained and hoarded our rations. Like a self-preservation kind of idea. Yeah, that, that's where we'll default to. Right. But he said, and he called it using moral freedom. So hmm. people in that situation had one last freedom left. And it was to choose how their attitude would be in the face of what they were going through. So a small percentage of prisoners would actually walk around. They would comfort others. They would share their rations. They would, you know, minister to dying people. And it would have taken a lot of courage to muster that up. So um, I would say that's an, an extreme example, but, you know, how how I, how do I see that that works in in regular life? It's kind of um, where you just try to go above yourself and right. look out and beyond. So in counseling, for example, people with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addictions, they tend to be very self-focused. And I won't use the word selfish because that's uh, derogatory. I just mean yeah. that they're having a lot of problems and they are focusing on that and on themselves. And when we see that they start doing better is when they start looking around and maybe helping others. So, you know, we say things like become a mentor, uh, find a charitable project, 
volunteer your time, get a pet. Yeah, the, the pet thing's interesting. Right? Like do uh, yeah. something to look beyond yourself and your problems. That's actually maybe. So this is part of your actual work. You include this in your, okay. In therapy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, we've talked about this, Allison and I talked about yeah. this, this pain being. Well, well, that generally, and, and as someone who, who had um, some, some chronic health problems, there's a necessity to to being self-focused um but there's also just just a, a a beauty that in in those moments when you're able to the the importance of of bringing yourself out of that to be able to see those around you and to help those around you in ways that you're able to um and, and those would vary i would assume based on your abilities your your capacity at that moment um, but I found that the most compelling piece in, um, in your work that you sent us was this concept of self-transcendence. And you see it in things like 12-step programs. It's very big in AA, like giving back to the program and yeah. stuff. The, um, I think about that often. I think of, and one of the reasons I can have talked about that, whether it's in sermons or in, because I've, I've literally said the same thing, that like pain, pain can make us self focused and I'm also careful to not necessarily say self-centered um, but you know having I remember when I was dealing with a fairly significant time of depression in my life I when when you realize that if you can in the midst of something like that uh, you hate that you're self-focused too like it's it like I and I think the kind of empathy or sympathy that we can have for people that that's like that's the that's one of the worst things about pain is that like I have to be self focused because I think I'm going to die if, if I'm not like I think that this could be and so but then trying to help people move beyond that that there's a I, I'm interested in too in the concept of meaning mm-hmm. um, and I think especially in your work with like I'm, I'm saying young moms but moms of, of uh, really young kids you say would you say zero to six years yeah and many of us have read kind of stuff on how important like in terms of neurophysiology the those first 12 months are in terms of bonding and so that's a lot of your work that you and then on the downtown east side some of that stuff but um the the importance of meaning and i could see if you're working with young moms that meaning would be centered on that child i would imagine that they see Mm -hmm. like meaningful it's like i'm going to be a mom for this this child is that for sure primary okay well so you want me to comment about yeah, meaning? Yeah, just meaning in general in your experience. And well, originally you asked me, Todd, if, um, you know, what's the importance of meaning for someone who's battled addiction mm-hmm. or faced abuse. I, I wanted to start by saying it's usually not the case of either or. Um, battling addiction and um, abuse go together. Uh, that's well put. You know, like um, Gabor Mate yep. said in the downtown east side, he never met a hardcore person struggling with drugs that had not been abused. Um, so here's how Frankel saw meaning, uh, people with no meaning. Um, they would wake up at 5 a.m. in bed. They'd start smoking their last cigarette, and they wouldn't get out of bed. And they knew that they were going to face a tough, you know, tough stuff for that. But they would turn over, and everyone knew that within 48 hours they'd be dead. And they, in fact, gave it a name, Give Up Bitis. Really? And that was because they had no reason to live anymore. Mm. So, again, like, take that to, you know, how can I help people find meaning? I don't know if you can help someone else find meaning. I think it's individual. 
but hmm. I can say parenthood provides meaning for a lot of us, uh, right? When we right. say, why wouldn't you commit suicide? It's because you wouldn't do it right. because of your kids. Right. So at the sanctuary program, we're helping mothers struggling with addiction to just regain natural delight and reward in their brains uh, from caregiving, which has been hijacked mm. by drugs. Help them nurture their child, mm. take delight in their child, and not do things that scare their child. Those are very, oh, like, so they well sound simple. It's, they're beautiful, though. But they can actually change your brain. Like, not scare your child, that's something we can, you know. It's Scaring your child is one of the main things that leads to disorganized attachment because it's a double bind. You need yeah. to, you can't be scared of someone that you turn to for your safety and security. Oh, so much to learn so, there. So um, I want to do a plug for the Sunshine Coast Health Center in Powell River. Yeah. They pride themselves on being a non-AA approach, using, yeah. and they use meaning-based therapy. So they would say the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The right. o- opposite of addiction is a meaningful That's life. That's so good. Yeah. Because I think That's if you can so find good. meaning in something, you're not just powering through for, for social reasons of I don't want to be seen as an addict or I don't like, I, I think you have to find meaning. If there isn't meaning, how, how do you continue? The, the, um, I, you talk about Frankel and Auschwitz and, and I've referred to it before on the podcast, so I won't go into great detail, but I, it, I've been there. Lynn, you and I were talking earlier that you've been there as well, that, and it is the most memorable place I've been in the world. Like as soon as I start talking about it, I, I feel things again. And, and, you know, just the darkness that I think I, you know, can still be felt there. This place where so many people were killed, where such dehumanization was going on. And I had a question here about, from the religious context, um, it's not necessarily directly related to your work, it's more just what do yeah. you feel about this. That one of the kind of tropes that you sometimes hear, I don't know if it's only in evangelical culture, um, is this an Anglican thing too? Not really. Uh, it within certain Anglican. So, yeah, there's this... Con- God's there's in this charge. God's in charge. And, and so God is on the throne is kind of the... So like no matter what happens, coronavirus, well, God is on the throne, right? Which would be, seems to kind of be something that's supposed to alleviate seems, our fear, But it seems right? dismissive actually because I'm like, okay, so, so God is on the throne and several thousand people have died of this. Right. And that's what, that's like, it's interesting because I can remember being at Auschwitz the the things that struck me most, and I still recall this now, I literally, as I'm standing there, as I'm praying, as I'm thinking through things, and, and, and where Maximilian Kolbe was killed, and the, the Pope had been there the day before, and so they had these flowers set up there where there was like the firing squad stuff, where there was like just crazy. And I remember standing in one place, and Jen, we, Jen and I were there together, and then just feeling that sense of being alone in a place like spiritually, I mean, in a, in a good kind of way, like having that sense of like, okay, what, what is happening here? What's the meaning? And all of a sudden in my mind came that trope. Um, what does God is on the throne mean here? Because God was on the throne when these horrific, psychotic things were happening. And so I don't know if I'm equating it to some of the, the men and particularly women that you've worked with who, you know, the concept, what does that sound like to somebody who has faced suffering, oppression, violence, you know, that, well, it's okay, like, God, I... I just your feedback on the kind of the God is on the throne way of seeing things. Well, well I thought about that, actually. I think it's good and bad. Uh, maybe kind of bad. <laughs> sort of like that. Have you ever heard this one about the Bible? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh, any clothes, which is an entirely closed system, right? Which means there's no. Right. I was just going to say both of those shut down conversation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it's used to yeah shut somebody up. Just say like. We don't need to have discussion about this because because the Bible says it, and clearly I understand what a two thousand year old document written in a different language to a different entirely social group of people obviously means in today's culture. Yeah. So, so if you have questions or doubt or God you're struggling, it. it's settled. <laughs> we don't need to. That's uncomfortable. Yes, it is. It, it what you know at, in the at Auschwitz, I was thinking, of course, of the interreligious stuff. Like this is all you know, almost entirely Jewish people being killed there. And, and so, you know, whether it's kind of a Christian trope or something, I don't think it only, I, I don't think it's only that. I think other faiths can have this same kind of thing. But I, I, I think on the positive thing, you're saying it could be good and bad. Um, I think if, you know, to encounter someone who's faced marginalization, fear, even watching this Pegwis hockey thing. Yeah. I am. I'm thinking and I'm praying. I believe there's, like, a God who loves us all, every single one of us, and that there's no, div- like division in that regard but it compels me to go what does it mean that god is on the throne if this person is facing this tremendous suffering and so i'm connected yeah, to this in some way i that's good to think about i was going to say the good part about that is that some people in aa and facing addictions they do find it really helpful to surrender their life to yeah. god mm-hmm. To be able to say, some of my participants said, to be able to finally uh, think they have to con- stop thinking they have to control everything. So like a tran- it transcendent. And just let God mm-hmm. help them and feel like God's in charge of their life. That can be helpful. To, when it shuts down conversations and when it doesn't work for people that have been through a lot, I mean, I don't have an answer personally to where God was during the Holocaust. Right. I thought about it and I'm wondering not where was God, but how about where was love? And Mm. here's what I think is hopeful, uh, was people like Oscar Schindler Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, whole towns like Mm -hmm. Le Chambon sur Lignon, that French town that was Huguenot. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Mennonite Central Committee that is the number three relief organization in World War II, those are all people of faith. Right. Who because of their view, yeah, because of their hopeful view, yeah. think we we have this hope and, and we want to help. And so God is in them. Yeah. And there were people doing things that were good in that horrible time period. I when as we're talking about this, I, I haven't been to Auschwitz, but I've been to Rwanda, and at the time the the genocide in '94 took place, uh, Rwanda was widely regarded as the most Christian nation in all of Africa something like 90% were, were Christian or somewhere around there. And this was very much Christian-on-Christian Christian violence and attack. Uh, the safest place for people to go to during, that atta- during the, the genocide was actually to the, to the Muslim communities. Because if you went to a church, there was a better than 50-50 chance that the, that the church, that the pastor, would hand you over to the people who wanted to hatchet you to death. But in the Muslim communities, in the mosques, if you went there, they would lay down their lives to protect you. Wow. I just, something in that. There's something in that of saying, mm-hmm. we are going to fight for, and they were protecting Christians. Like, they were protecting people who were Where did we see this recently? Them. Was it there was some violence against 
was it against Muslim communities and then people were going and standing around? Well, it, uh, after the massacre in, in uh, the, the shootings in um, New Zealand right. and there, right. was, there was Jewish people and Christians and others holding hands yeah. around mosques saying, no, we will, we will protect. And there's that, again, it gets back to that sense of in the midst of, of fear, in the midst of risk to self, I can either go back and protect myself uh, so I can collect toilet paper and I can collect beans and protect myself, or I can live for something else and realize that we're going to get out of this uh, together, not apart. together and not apart. And yeah, uh, the, the last kind of thing I was wanting to ask you about before kind of uh, ending with some, some great hope, and it's, it's all hopeful to me, like the fact that you're doing this work is tremendously important. Mm -hmm. And and for for people like us who, who do this, like it, like who are talking like this, to know that there are people like you working in communities and who, who have taken, you know, education, experience, kind of all the resources that had to be poured into that, and you're using it in this way is is inspires us, right? To kind of go, what does that mean for? But the flip side of that, to not quite end on this because it's kind of dark. Um, and not to get into a theological discussion on it, but when you work with people who face such marginalization, fear, judgment, violence, whatever, you, many of us are confronted with kind of thinking about what is evil. <laughs> like how, ha, have you had times in Europe where you've just seen like, I can't, I can't believe what this woman has experienced and it's just so dark and how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I think evil exists uh, and suffering is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. uh, but it can be lots of things. Betrayal of your spouse, infidelity, mm -hmm. abuse, racism, poverty, addiction. Uh, I would think, I'm thinking of evil from a bigger perspective. Mm -hmm. And the one that comes to my mind is, is our Canadian history of our attempted mm -hmm. genocide of our indigenous people. Mm -hmm. that nearly wiped them out entirely and all of the atrocities committed uh, against them. To me, that is the, one of the biggest evils of the last 150 years. So when you, do you f see that to some degree when you're working with an individual, like an Indigenous woman? Or, like, do you feel that echo sometimes? Uh, like, the, not just the pain that she herself has experienced, but that she's part of a community that has experienced dealt with this oh yeah you can yeah. feel it yeah. and that sometimes feels a bit hopeless to me yeah. okay but can i tell you how can i change over to something a little <laughs> more positive yeah we're gonna end right <laughs> well i just want to say um that's one of the things i've thought about i read recently that frankel wasn't a fan of that idea that we have to bear collective guilt for our country mm. what do you guys think They're very interesting yeah he, he didn't think that germans needed to be collectively guilty that for we have Holocaust. to kind of have this mass kind of like mm. uh yeah take it up on ourselves and so what, what did he want instead he just thought it, you can do individual things mm -hmm. uh and so when i think about the truth and reconciliation committee and the proposals that they've made to canadians it helps me bring it just into a personal perspective. So mm. as a psychologist, I wouldn't have to go work with that population. I could have a more comfortable life right now at this stage yeah. of my life. But I feel like being able to give back 
and help one indigenous mother at a time <laughs> to break the cycle of the intergenerational yep. transmission of disorganized attachment. That's a big term. Yep. Um, could be my little gifts of reconciliation, one person at a time. Mm. Mm. So that's how I want to think about well, that's truth hopeful. and reconciliation. That's like entirely hopeful. And it, but it's also honest and doesn't dismiss the real circumstance and problems, right? Uh, my theological hero who often gets quoted on this podcast. Is it Bart? Uh, Carl I'm, Bart. I'm not sure. I, I thought, you know, so he was writing in and around some of, these, some of these terrible things historically as well. But as we've mentioned before here, he was known as the cheerful theologian because he, he basically said, like, true faith and, and true Christian faith is hopeful. And so there's this quote that I had when I was thinking about the work you do that came up just today in my thinking that he said, whatever else may come between the morning and the midday, kind of whatever the circumstances are, whatever is happening, and the evening, the work of the community must always be unconditionally bright. And, and so he's been, like, no matter the darkness, the work is unconditionally bright. That you get, not only are you kind of called to do this and you feel there's like a, not, I don't know if you're saying responsibility quite, given our history in Canada. So not only do you kind of have to do this in a way, but you get to do it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? This is something that is bright for you. I don't know. I mean, if you have anything to say about that. Well, or I, kind I'm going to look up that Bart guy. That, oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that term. What did you call it? Unconditionally, Unconditionally bright. bright. He said, no matter, no matter what else it is, if we have a sense of call to anything transcendent, to any work that is going to make a difference in the world, it's bright, it's bright work. And that is evident even though we're, you know, um, we're in one particular context here with your work. It's evident that it's bright and we're grateful for it. So It's a nice way so, to reframe it. Amen. So thanks so much for being here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ricky T, producer. Yes. Got some hand sanitizer thank the for us all. At, uh, Can, oh, North yeah. Point uh, yes. Brewing Company and for do their beer. And thank you. Do we have a? We do have a. We do have a gift for Lynn. I will be giving it to her momentarily. Uh, not on. Some, not on the show. Not on. The, well, not right now. No, I don't have it with <laughs> me. But we'll, we'll be giving her some. It's going to be gifts. really good, though. It's going to be good. so amazing. Oh, but okay. unfortunately, the guests are not going to, or the listeners aren't going to know what it is. So thank you so very much. It's thank fantastic. You, thank you. Thank you. We'll keep apprised of your work and really appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you.